You are listening to the Overfunctioning Leadership Podcast, learning leadership concepts through life experience. Hello, friends. Welcome to another podcast brought to you by Of Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And today we are bringing to you the answer to the question, how do I become more efficient slash productive as a leader? We considered doing two episodes, but, you know, we're not really ready to discuss the nuances of efficiency versus productivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but if maybe later on we'll, we'll do it just so we get maybe more Maybe we'll clicks. break it out in the future. <laughs> two episodes in one. <laughs> yeah, so um, before we do any of that, uh, we need to recap a couple, actually two different podcasts that came out uh, since last time we chatted. Um, one was Managing Conflict, and what was that about? What did we talk about? Um, well, we talked a long, long time ago about managing conflict and part of it was just determining when is the right time to manage conflict? How do you set up that sort of situation? When do you know that it's the right time to engage? Can you frame that conversation? Um, we did a couple of like, it might be nice to try this. It might be nice to try that. But we, we also talked a lot about, you know, how do you know it's time to confront? How do you do it when... It's unexpected, and someone's coming down on you, confronting you, and you weren't ready for it, as compared to a time where you're both coming together, both parties are coming together with the know-how of what's about to happen. Hmm. Yeah, I think we talked about timing, and does this have to be solved now? And oftentimes, the answer is no, but solving it or talking about it in a timely fashion. Yeah, and then... You know, Zach also brought up about conflict, how it's one of those things that needs to be done, too, to like be able to solve the problem. You can't just keep avoiding the conflict of having – if you have an issue with somebody, you can't keep avoiding it. It's a life skill, and uh, I've seen many times where it's turned into chronic anxiety in a relationship because, like, like John, you just said, the time for that confrontation has passed, and you end with – Feeling like it's the wrong time, feeling like you missed it, feeling like confrontation is uncomfortable, and it is, and so you let it slip by the wayside, and uh, at some point, you need to nut up, buttercup. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, perhaps as you think about a fable, you might think of a conversation that's difficult to have, and so you avoid having it, and it just makes things a little bit more difficult. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, Wait, are you leading into a fable? Well, perhaps at some point. <clears throat> well, before we get to that fable, we got to do a little plug here. We did do a brumble as well about Halloween, in which we talked about candy and you know making sure it doesn't have needles in it and blades and stuff, but also about the anxiety that was that is associated to Halloween and horror movies and how it's acute anxiety. And anyways, we were just trying to like play off to figure out what where does Bone Family Systems Theory connect with Halloween and horror movies. And if you're thinking, wait, what is a brumble? Why haven't I heard about this? And why was that last episode so weird? You should probably (laughs) actually listen to it because every fifth Tuesday we release a brumble. And if you listen to one of those episodes, you'll find out what they actually mean. And that's the fifth Tuesday of the month. Of the month. Yeah. Okay. Just want to Not every fifth. You kind of sounded silly there. Yeah. I sounded ridiculous. Shame me. Does that sound like something you'd be interested in listening to, John? Uh, yeah, second Tuesday of next week. Yeah, uh-huh. Glad we're all on the same page. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. So, um, <clears throat> as John mentioned already and alluded to, 
you know, some sort of relational conflict type things. I do bring a fable uh, today. So go ahead and get out your mason jars, fill them up with some vinegar, toss in some things you want to pickle, let them sit there for a while, and, you know, we'll talk next time and see how your pickled eggs are doing. Um, or cucumbers. Or pickled pig's feet. Mm. Tasty. Top-notch tastiness. So um, <clears throat> I'm not sure how much to divulge here, but... Uh, who you know nobody's listening to this right so it's it's not it's not like it's public or anything so um so i was i've been interested in this girl i was interested in this girl for a while and um she contacted me and was like uh and this is after like several conversations we were talking every single day things were getting more and more interesting it seemed like we were more and more engaged but there was a point in which she kind of pulled away and i could kind of tell and then she called me up and said, hey, you know, I just met a guy. Um, he's closer to where I live. And I'd like to start seeing him. And then so anyways, it was worked out that she was going to call me back in like a week and a half to say how things were going with him because she hadn't gone on a date with him yet. So anyways, after all of that, I didn't hear anything back from her after a week and a half. And so... I was, I, I must say, I was a little brokenhearted, um, so pretty sad, and there's other system theory things to talk about that, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know if the gory details need to be taken out here. Anyways, so, um, but what was interesting is that because of Bowen family systems theory, I started to understand why she really wasn't getting back to me, and this goes back to the conflict discussion that we're talking about, of which it's, it was almost like, and I don't know. But this is my best guess. It was almost an avoidance of being able to not want to talk to me because that brings up some anxiety that she necessarily, number one, doesn't want to have. Number two, doesn't really need because she's already with some other guy, right? And so bringing up some anxiety that, you know, that conflict is not no longer needed not there, why would you bring it up, right? So, I mean, other than to be... You know, a decent human being and stuff. <laughs> I mean, that could lead right into a conversation about this society's uh, new new uh, epidemic of ghosting, right? No, oh, yes. You've uh -huh. heard about that, John, right? Uh, Halloween episode, Rumble, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, ghosting is what, I, from a, a systems theory standpoint, it's easier to not have a negative experience, and so I'm just going to avoid having... A conversation whatsoever there may have been some romantic interest from one side more than the other you're not mm -hmm. feeling it so you just step away no contact ever again yep. and yeah the word awkward is like uh anathema in society now where we want to avoid all awkwardness so let's cling to safety and not risk yeah exactly so um so anyway, that's just been a little bit into uh into my life and so you know that's that was interesting. So now, how you might ask yourself, how is this connected to productivity and efficiency? Well, the things we've already talked about, managing conflict and ghosting and all that stuff, kind of it's gonna it really does fit well within if efficiency and productivity in a way. So, if you're gonna become more of a productive leader, these pieces are gonna be part of your system. So how do you become more productive as a leader when it comes to this conflict, when it comes to this connecting with people? Um, 
Zach, do you have like a three-step plan? Because that's, <laughs> uh, you know, as I signed up for this podcast to listen to it, like I'm looking for the three things that I can do every single day to make myself more productive. And I'm hoping it doesn't have to do with people. Go. Um, I, I would actually say it's an acronym. I call it FAME, right? Uh, framing, awareness, uh, uh, merging, and uh, evidence. And so, you know, you just take these three framing. You got to frame frame the issue. You got to – everyone needs to know where you're on the same page. Awareness, right? Not only – do people need to know that you're framing this together? But there has to be science posted everywhere. There's mm -hmm. got to be some sort of awareness. They can't look anywhere without knowing that that's your goal and your intent. Merging, everyone's got to be on the same page. Ask them questions. Make them feel awkward. Make them reiterate to you what you've already said. And then evidence, the numbers will show it for itself. <laughs> well, that's just about does it for this podcast. What do you think, guys? <laughs> It sounds, I don't know, Zach, that just doesn't sound like something I really want to do. No? No. No. You'll mm, never be no. famous. No. No fame <laughs> for you. And plus, I hate acronyms. So thank you. I appreciate bringing that in. So in, in all seriousness, um, this podcast, I must say, about efficiency and productivity, if you're looking for the three steps, I mean... I, I read through Chris Bailey's Productivity Project, and there's a lot of different authors who've talked about productivity. You know, you can wake up in the morning, and if you have a post-it, a post and you can write down the goals for the day. And so I think those things are good, but where are your goals lying, and what is your productivity on? Is it, as we talk about the iceberg of, you have the rational world and the emotional world, are your goals and productivity strictly in the rational world or are we talking now into the emotional world so a lot of a lot of the productivity in these books and, and those types of things are going to be held in the rational world like if i do i have a checkoff list and i check all these things off man i've been really productive today but that seems to be can i talk about the 36th president of the united states oh yes oh i forgot this is the 30 <laughs> episode 36 i apologize sir and whose episode is this since you're talking about him? Yeah, well, 36th president of the United States was Lyndon Baines Johnson. Oh. The master of the Senate is what he was known I as. I didn't know his middle name is Baines. Yeah, that's Baines. I've only ever heard B. Yes, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Hmm. So let's talk about the 36th president and efficiency. So one of Lyndon Johnson's domestic achievements was he was able to kind of helped to push through the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, here's the interesting part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was actually originally championed by John F. Kennedy, who was unable to be efficient and get that through Congress. So when it comes to productivity, and let me read the definition of efficiency that would be helpful here. Then I want to cr contrast those two presidents and see the connection between the rational world and the emotional sphere. Efficiency, adjectives, um, well-organized and competent. Synonyms include organized, methodical, logical, and orderly. Hmm. So if you know much about legislation, in order to get something through Congress, you have to be able to master relationships. And so it's not necessarily just orderly, organized, flowcharts, it's actually there's a relational component to effective 
you know, efficiency and getting things through. And I think those two presidents contrast one who was pretty good at it and one who seemed to struggle at his relationship with Congress. That would be JFK. Hmm. Did you bring politics up because this episode is literally coming out on the election day? Uh, midterm elections are uh-huh. upon us. Uh, n- no, I think about politics quite a bit, though, actually. <laughs> Just weird. part Strange. of my job. Oh, yeah. I prefer not to think about history. I like to trod my own ground, you know, <laughs> make my own paths in the corn maze. Good for you. Good. It's, <laughs> it's a typical millennial. <laughs> one thing that we support, millennial bashing. <laughs> From one millennial to another. Um, okay, so we have JFK, and what, can we say LBJ? We can. I've always said LBJ, and my students think I'm talking about LeBron James. Yeah. Uh-huh. So. so he's pretty... He, he actually... This is, I was kind of joking, but if you, if you know LBJ, LeBron James, he also talks a lot about efficiency in his game. He does. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Right, sports? Sports team go. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Efficiency. So you you brought up something that's important within efficiency and productivity, and it comes down to relationships, and which is the foundation of this entire podcast is relationships. So if you want to become more efficient and productive as a leader, what does that have to do with relationships, right? I mean, so is is the first place to start with this discussion taking a step up and looking at the division between the rational and the emotional realms of our our processing of things and the way that we respond versus react? I would say as a leader that's that's a big big step from understanding that you can't just prescribe things because people need to be able to adapt. Hmm. Well, I, I think most leaders do spend time thinking about that rational world and, you know, whether it's flow charts or the SLACE initiative, but what oftentimes maybe surprises them is carrying out those tasks are often, is often done by others. And the, you know, the phrase sabotage has a thousand faces looks like if I can't master the emotional sphere and get along well with people, then people will resist me at every turn and I'll be frustrated trying to be efficient. Hmm. So would you say that you can't be efficient without good relationships within a system? Truly efficient when it comes down to the end of it. I I don't know. I, I suppose how how big is the task and how many people, if you're a sole carpenter, I don't know. That's true. And you're building a house and you're doing all the work yourself. Well, I don't know. Even in that, if you have to interact with the customers, my dad was a, my dad was a carpenter and he would work for customers and he would, he would go into the job and he, you know, tell them what it's going to be. And he told me that if, if he knew that they were going to be a pain in the butt, he would get out of it. Hmm. And then he's in his biggest issues are those, are those people who are never satisfied or never want to be done. And then guess what happens? And then they never end up paying him. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that relationship, even though he was doing a lot of stuff by himself, it was like these relationships were the crux of how things were going to go within that. Cause he's working literally inside their house. So the system is right there. I mean, that's an interesting point. I've worked in, in, in the few business spheres that I've worked in. I've heard on several occasions, you want to be able to, be in a place 
businessly, fiscally, you know, you want to be in a good place so that you can turn down those bad clients so that you don't have to work with them mm-hmm. because often they're more trouble than they're worth. And, and that's an interesting thought that, you know, some people aren't worth the hassle um, from a services perspective. So let me, if you were going to go to the doctor and the doctor had terrible bedside manner, if you will, mm-hmm. but they were good at what they did, they prescribed the right medicine, they operated on you effectively, whatever it is, Do, is that not efficiency? Is that not rational world competency and the emotional sphere doesn't really seem to matter? Hmm. I, I mean, I guess I could see that in some shape or form. I wonder if that person... I'm trying to guess. So if I was that person and I had a doctor who was like killing it, like Dr. House or something, um, he's like the worst, right? Although he probably wanted to take it. I had to be some weird sick, but whatever. So would it, would my dependency increase upon him? Upon that doctor? Dependency More or less. Like, so if I get any little bug, am I just going to keep going to him because he's just going to fix all my problems? Or if he has a, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. For, if he had a better bedside manner, then would he like teach me like, Hey, you should look for these things. And you know, yeah, yes, I'm here available for you to talk to, but here's some different things you should be looking for. And, and so that way that client can start looking at those things for themselves because it's, that would be the ultimate self differentiation as a doctor. It seems like that would be, that would make the most sense. Right. Well, from the other side of it, when you're looking at, how he's framed as the best doctor like how does that get out is that out of like the doctor's yelp in which case (laughs) the the people who don't really need the best doctor in the world are definitely going to pull him down if they can go to you know three out of five doctors and get their toothache fixed then you know he's going to get lower but if if they have some sort of something that needs that technical expertise and they know that he's the best doctor then the results are what speaks, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what you bear. Here's a quote I, I read in a book. It's somewhat paraphrased, but I think it's just about dead on. Uh, there's a leader who went to a leadership training that said, you know what, I'm not into this touchy-feely relationship stuff. I'm about productivity. I get paid to get stuff done. And didn't want to sit there and listen about triangles and emotional process and all that stuff. He just wanted to work. But what I have discovered and most of the people that I talk to that are in leadership is that in order for them to advance almost any initiative, it takes others to carry it out significantly. And if people think you're a jerk, then those initiatives are going to be dead on arrival. Hmm. And I think this kind of feeds into this you know, perfectionism, um, kind of role of trying to continue perfection. And we talked about this earlier, you know, if you're trying to be, have perfection, this can also lead to like self-sabotage and then maybe down to, you know, other areas that aren't going to be harmful to you because you're just relying upon yourself to do these things over functioning and a multitude of other symptoms, perhaps. What's that connection then between efficiency and perfectionism? Well, I mean, efficiency, if we're looking at it strictly from a rational world, it would have that checkbox. It'd be the checkbox. Like, I got to check all these boxes off, and then I know that I did a good job. So within that rational world, it seems like that would be the way. But within the way that you guys are speaking of, is if, it's, if it is relational, 
there's no checkbox per se. Like you can't because as soon as you check somebody off, like well, I figured out Zach, boom, and then like what do I just never like is the relationship not grow anymore or what does that look like? You know. Well, so so that jumps into the measurement of standards at that point, right? How are you standardizing your goal? How are you hmm. measuring this this efficiency level? I think value-based leadership might have some part to play in that. We've seen I, – I feel as if I've seen a bunch of companies that have really pushed the fact that they are operating on a value-based system saying – as a company, we value these things. This is what we are tr- uh, we are trying to present ourselves as, and we want you to be in line with that. And so some companies that uh, we've worked with in the past uh, in my business, they, we've actually seen um, member employees be um, let go because they didn't meet that in that inner company standard of hmm. values, which I thought was interesting. So what would be an example of a value that a company would set that an employee may not meet? Um, and that's, I mean, that that's where it gets finicky. As far as I know from this particular example I'm thinking of, there was never a specific <laughs> charge brought up, but it was a generally accepted, both he agreed and they, when they, they presented this to him, you know, but an example might be in a customer service industry mm-hmm. kindness, or, mm-hmm. um, I feel like Chick-fil-A is one of those classic examples, mm-hmm. you know, they have to be, and this wouldn't be their value, but one of the ways that it manifests itself is they have to present themselves happily um, in a pleasant way. They have to be kind. They have to be courteous. They have to have to go out of their way to, you know, offer to do things such as refill drinks or that where you wouldn't expect that out of a fast food place. And I'm wondering, is that a training program or is that the type of person they hire? So do you have to teach someone that? So if somebody's naturally a kind and happy and thoughtful person, Mm -hmm. that's just who they are. You don't necessarily have to train them the technique of doing this. It's just an outflow of them as a person, right? Yeah. So like below, you know, the surface and the, in the emotional sphere, that's just who they are. It's their presence. And so it just, it just comes out versus, okay, here's the seven steps to do. Step one, greet the customer by name. Step two, Smile. Step three, keep smiling. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm wondering about that. that. That's an interesting thought. Uh, when I was in college, first year uh, resident assistant RA, I, uh, it was before school had even started. We had some football players on the hall. And, excuse me. And uh, we had an incident that was, um, there, there were girls on the hall. We lived in a gender-separated dorm, and so I was obligated to report it. And so I talked to my uh, resident director, the guy above me who's employed by the college. I say, hey, what do I do about this? And he's like, come down, we'll chat. So I go down, I chat, and we talk about it. And he's like, do you want me to talk about this, or do you want to talk about this? And I was like, well, I don't want my power usurped in some direction. I don't want it to seem like I'm running to you to handle it. And um, in later interactions, we talked about that, and... Uh, he said that um, wh- some of the reasons that he hired me 
and and this example was a situation in which it manifested was you hire based off of the things you can't train the character and so yeah. that was an example where he talked about just like an intuitive character of responsibility or i don't remember his particular point but i remember him using that specific situation as an example of how you hire for the things that you can't train. And, and that's something that's always stuck with me. And and that's kind of why I brought up this whole value-based thing is you want people whose character, who they are, how they define themselves is in line with your values such that you don't have to over-function. You don't have to micromanage. You don't have to. You can trust that they're going to function in line with your ultimate goals so that the efficiency comes from them being on the same track per se yeah that was my question about that connection between i like the phrase higher based on the things you can't teach yeah and the connection between that and efficiency of trying to accomplish yeah well and i remember a while ago john we had it we had several discussions about i, I do student council and I'm, and I'm part of a different groups with different students and um, I remember one time we talked about how you have to have the right people on the bus to go in the right direction. And so if you have the wrong people on the bus, it's really hard to have a good ride, right? So, um, and I don't want to boil efficiency and productivity down to like just hire the right people because we all know that you work within a system and you may not be the boss or let's just say you're at home and you, you're on a one down relationship or you get hired into a system as the boss you can't just go firing everybody either, you know? So like there's, there's not going to be a perfect system where it's like, well, I hired all these people and they're all awesome and I love them and, and that's it. Um, because even in that efficient way of saying, well, I just made it myself really, you know, interactive and really friendly with everybody. We've all had bosses. We've seen people like that where they're really, really friendly with everybody, but then nobody really respects them. And so, um, there's like some <clears throat> move when it comes to this efficiency world that has to do with the people. It seems like somehow the people that you're working with is really important and being able to connect with them is really important in order to have a better efficient system. Correct. Productive, productive system. Uh, yeah. I think there's something to be said for like with the whole happy boss example, friendly boss, but no one respects them. There's something to be said about the whole what you see is what you get, you know, where you're not going through layers where he's friendly, he's nice to you, and he never really confronts you, but really there's some stuff going on under the surface that's not being addressed straightforwardly, and so it leads to anxiety, which leads to uncertainty, which leads to separation, distance forming, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, which can't be conducive to efficient or effective, yeah. you know, workplace environments. Yeah. I want to go back to the original definition of efficient, organized, methodical, systematic, logical, orderly, productive, effective... Can you do those things without being good at relationships? Someone says, I'm just good at tasks. You give me a job, I get it done. I'm efficient. I'm organized. I have a method. I have a system. I'm orderly. I'm businesslike, and I get things done. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm hmm. not looking for touchy-feely 
kumbaya stuff. That's what they're looking for. Some people are. And, yeah. And is that something that is naive or is that, are we making this too difficult to be efficient? Do those things. You don't need the relationship stuff. Some would say that. I mean, I get, I can see it from that same way. I mean, if I was a boss to hire somebody who just did their job, didn't really interact with me, like did exactly what I told them to do. And they just left. It would be awesome. I mean, it'd be great. I wouldn't have to relate with them at all. They would just get in, get out, do exactly what I told them to do. And then that'd be awesome. Right. But I mean, really, would that be it? I, I don't know. Like, that seems like the seems like a robot um, in some ways, but it seems simplistic, though. I mean, there's as a boss, I'm going to have to ask them to do something different, change the plans. Or yeah, you're going to have to address a customer that needs something, and you got to be flexible. And if I don't get along well with people, then all the skills I have are. Or this is the most self-differentiated person you've ever hired. <laughs> like, like this could also be, you know, we're talking about efficiency. You want to you wanna be really efficient as a leader and you're able to hire people or whatever. Hire somebody who's very self-differentiated. Mm -hmm. And then they can handle all those things themselves. That's, mm -hmm. that's the ideal here. Interesting. Right? Because the ideal would be hiring somebody who actually would take care of all these things themselves. And you could interact with them, yes. But they are self self differentiated and have those characteristics to where they can handle that themselves and they could reach out to you for advice. But you know, the ideal person to work with is somebody who just I mean, deals with their I own mean, that's an crap. interesting thought. So if I have someone who can come in and I tell them exactly what to do and there's never gonna be any change, then they are perfect for that job. Mm -hmm. But what place doesn't have change? Sure. What place maintains that homeostasis that sameness for forever and so the the real question is how does that person respond to change right and that's where the relational aspect comes in that a uh, need to communicate the need to understand emotional responses so that it doesn't play into those workplace flows mm -hmm. so that you end up being able to say hey uh, I know this is different how do we establish this efficient pattern of action so that yeah. you can end up as that mindless drone that I don't have to talk to you <laughs> except on the Monday morning meetings where I hand mm. you your task. Uh -huh. I think you're right. Complexity in jobs today is even more so than it used to be. So, and it's not going to change. Alex, too, I was interested in your thought about getting the right people on the bus and efficiency. And I think you're right. If you hiring the right people is really important because if I hire the wrong people, then I got to manage them more. And it's difficult. Managing people, I believe, is the most difficult thing for leaders to do. Mm -hmm. But if I can get that first step right by hiring, in the words of Bowen, people who are relatively self-differentiated, it's a journey we're all on, but if we can have people on the higher end of that differentiation scale, it just makes the business mm -hmm. more efficient. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So then from there, um, I'm not asking for some prescriptive advice, but, but what do we do when we haven't hired the right people? My, my first thought is we look inward and we reward those healthy emotional processes we that that we want to happen we say hey you can approach me about this that and the other so that we don't have any tangles you 
decide what should be rewarded, and you start with yourself and make sure that in your behavior and your actions, that is encouraged. Yeah. I think it's it's important in that case that you communicate clearly your expectations mm-hmm. with that person, that this is the job description that you have. So there's eight things or whatever it is. Uh, that way, when you have to have a conversation with them about a task, they're not saying, well, I never knew that. So that can help take that uncertainty out of the out of the equation. Isn't that so funny about job descriptions now, though? I, I don't know exactly how it is for teachers, but when I look at a job description for a programming or technical job, I have um, a little blurb about the company. I have a blurb about the technologies and the specific tasks with those technologies I'm expected to do. Um, but the idea is imagine that there's like a five-year progression and they're hiring for that fifth year, and but they know they're going to get someone within those one to three years. So you never really meet those expectations. Like you're never on the book that person that they're trying to hire because it's cheaper to hire and train than it is to hire. But they set the mold of what they perfectly mm-hmm. want and then what they know they're not going to get. <laughs> and then you're like – I have to apply for this anyway, even though, you know, of these 20 things, I only meet 12 of them. And that sort of makes me uncertain. And I, I, that's what I've seen, specifically just having transition jobs. Like, it's amazing how not necessarily unrealistic, but how blatant the expectations are and also how they don't really directly translate to what I do on a day to day. Interesting. It's like, yeah, it's like the things we want, but we're probably not going to get. So as we recap here, it sounds like, you know, uh, you talked about expectations. John talked about expectations. Um, and you specifically talked about just now. Uh, how the expectations are so clearly laid out and so mm-hmm. firm, but they're not really what, what they're going to get. They know that. It's not one they're going to get. And I guess my next point with that is the amount of communication that's required from me to them and them to me, specifically during the training process, is basically resetting all of those expectations from that job description. Hopefully they flushed out what they needed to flush out in the training Mm -hmm. or the interviews. But, you know, interviews are only so much and you're putting on your best face. And so, I mean, it's just an interesting translation of expectations of what you want when you've hired someone to way before that even starts trying to find those people and get them interested. Okay. So productivity, efficiency, if, if I could ask you a, a, like a sentence recap, what would you say? If you, if you want to be more efficient and, and productive as a leader, what would you do? What should you do? Based uh-huh. off of Bone Family Systems Theory. I'd say hire the right people, learn how to Manage yourself in the midst of difficult relationships and also plan well. Yep. Uh, I, I would say be the example of the things that you want to encourage. Uh, mm-hmm. Clear communication, um, values, guiding principles, that sort of thing. So that even if you're not in a position to make sure you have hired the right people or to hire the right people, mm-hmm. that you have set that standard mm-hmm. of saying this is what we want. This is what we're looking for. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what I was going to say too. Set the homeostasis. What the what is the homeostasis you want to set in the system? You know, what are the standards that you're going by? And so, and that means you know, sitting down and thinking about what your mission and vision is. But that's for the company. 
And I, I, all three of us would say that, think about what that means for you as an individual person. And what is your purpose? What is your, what are you doing here? You know, and that doesn't have to necessarily be connected to the mission or vision of the, the company or whatever, but like, think about what kind of, what kind of system are you putting together as that leader? Are you reducing the anxiety? All of those things try to get outside of it a little bit and see what's going on. And that'll help out with your efficiency and productivity. If you can lower the anxiety and those types of things. I mean, that sort of clarity translates down to even, say, the meeting level where you can have someone actually say, hey, this is what this meeting is about and this is what we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. all the way back up. It's sort of a, a soft way of setting that example. Hey, we're all here for this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the parroting that happens, and I know that John and I have seen this a lot with students, too, is that like you show them this way and then they end up doing it the exact same way that you just did it, which is always at one point <laughs> when you do it good, it's great. But when you when they do stuff where you're like, oh, I didn't really want them to do it that way, and I must have really screwed this up. It's always the fun part. So, anyways, but I think that's it, gentlemen. Feeling good about this? So efficiency and productivity. Work on yourself. Expectations. Hire the right people. Homeostasis. Sorry, there's no check boxes. Although, I mean, check boxes help sometimes. Fame makes you feel good. Frame it. <laughs> I forget. Aim it. <laughs> Aim it. Maim it. Maim it. And uh, Aim it. <laughs> so is that like an emoji somehow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send lots of emojis. You got to find the appropriate praise emoji hands. to represent the activity. Praise, praise. Praise, praise. <laughs> okay, well, um, that'll wrap us up. Uh, you can get us on iTunes, Google Play, Simplecast, on the Facebook. You can also email us at theofpodcast at gmail.com. That is theofpodcast at gmail.com. And thank you, Jesse Huffstetler, also known as Jetler, for our sick beats and yes. some musical guidance being our uh, uh, our sage. Our, our muse. Right. Maybe. Mage. Our mage. <laughs> okay, well, with that, I am Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And we will catch you next time. See you around. Stay famous. <laughs> <laughs>